We're going through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We've been doing that for oh, about 25 years. Uh, and um, this is our second time through. And, uh, and it's a funny thing when you go through the Bible, you go through ver- books and verses that a lot of churches uh, you don't see go through. Um, how many of you have done a recent study with a pastor or a church in the book of Zephaniah? Raise your hand. Yeah, uh, probably, I don't see anyone, zero. Uh, uh, okay, let's, let's, let's make it easier. How many of you have ever done a study with a pastor through the book of Zephaniah? One, two, three, <laughs> that's good, okay. So, you know, in, uh, you know 13 and 1400 people, uh, three, okay. Um, how many of you guys have, uh, know where the book of Zephaniah is in your Bible? Raise your hand. Oh, okay, well, that's good, <laughs> about half. Um, how many of you guys have read the book of Zedekiah, anybody? Okay, yeah, uh, there is no book of Zedekiah. Just checking to see if you're, uh, anyway. Uh, why, don't you grab your, why don't you grab your Bible and turn to Zephaniah. It's where the pages stick together there in your Bible. The gold leaf is still intact. Um, <laughs> some of you guys are like, <gasps> it's like. <laughs> now you say, Brett, why are you joking about that? Well, it's interesting because not only is Zephaniah a three chapter minor prophet, Um, which I've noticed people tend to avoid the minor prophets, which is unfortunate because the minor prophets are great. But if there's any minor prophet people purposefully avoid, it might just be Zephaniah. And the reason why, it's dark and gloomy and depressing. That's why we have the wonderful graphic up behind me here of the storm, because uh, it's like a storm. And, and um, now, now the good news is there's a little spot of light in the book of Zedekiah, uh, pardon me, Zedekiah, now I messed up, <laughs> Zephaniah. Um, the book of Zephaniah, there's a spot of light and we'll get to that on Wednesday night. I love how even the hardest of books um, have um, point to Jesus, the Messiah. And I love that, we'll see that on Wednesday, but um, I've got a gloomy scripture for you uh, uh, on this Sunday, but uh, sometimes seeing the darker side is actually kind of important and helpful. Um, Churches that avoid the Old Testament because they say, well, the Old Testament, we like the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. Can I just say, he's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he doesn't change, God is the same. And so to get the full picture of God, you have to kind of see the darker side as well. Brett, is there a darker side of God? Well, I'm not gonna say that in the sense that um, God is light, of course. But at the same time, um, love sometimes, there is a darker side of love. What do you mean, Brett? Well, it's an interesting thing. When you're a Christian, you have to, in order to really appreciate the love and the light and the mercy and the grace, you also have to see kind of the darker side. Um, I, I remember a story uh, that, that kind of uh, is one that illustrates that. It was a, a late night in a suburban area in a, some little town in America. A child lay restless in her bed when suddenly a man comes into her room and the child cries. The mother hears the cries and runs into the room and, and there the man is, is uh, holding the little girl, uh, pulling her up out of the crib, but the mother grabs her and, and the little girl cries and grabs the mother and the man steps out and dials his cell phone and he's talking to some, you know, uh, someone, uh, evidently an accomplice, um, and, and, and makes some sort of arrangement on the phone. And then he comes back and takes the girl, the little girl out of the mother's arms and he runs down the stairs and jumps into a car and they speed down the highway street after street. And the little girl's, you know, crying and the, the, the man is, you know, hushing her and, and ripping through the streets. And, and finally they come to this big ominous dark building where, where um, he, he pulls her out of the car, still screaming. And, and, and then there's a, there's a room with a light on and a lot of, a lot of light in that room. And, and the, and the man pulls this little girl and hands, hands her to probably the accomplice that he was on the phone with before, hands the little girl to him and he takes her in and there's a, a, another a woman in there and they take her and lay her on a table and they drug this little girl. Um, and then they take a sharp, shiny knife and they plunge it into her stomach. You guys are so quiet, why, why are you so serious? <laughs> you're, you're saying, Brett, that's a horrible story. Well, I told you it's a dark, gloomy sermon today. Uh, but wait, is that a horrible story? Well, actually it's the most loving story I could ever tell. I just left out some key elements. For example, the, the man that took the little girl from the crib, that was her father, I didn't tell you that part. And I also didn't tell you that the man that he called was the family doctor and that the building that he drove the little girl to was a hospital and the room with lights on was a surgery room and the knife was a scalpel that removed, um, you know, a, uh, um, 
you know, a, a problem within her abdomen that was making her uncomfortable. You see, I left out story. Now, the reason that's important for you to understand is that's what everybody does today, especially when you're watching news and stories about people. They just leave stuff out and make things sound however they want them to make. You can make a story sound horrifying. Some of you are like, death penalty. That person needs it. But then you hear the detail. Oh, maybe he needs a commendation. That poor father, uh, you know, helped his little daughter and saved her life. And you might say in some ways, that's the darker side of love, isn't it? I mean, love does have some heavy moments. Deb and I had to go through that with Joey when Joey, the one who's leading worship here this morning, when, when he was two weeks old, we had to race him down to the hospital because he wasn't holding down food and he was getting dehydrated. And, and man, they didn't know what to do. They scanned him and they tried to figure out what was going on, but they had to cut him open, exploratory surgery at two weeks old. And uh, man, that was brutal enough. But then, you know, they, they stitched him all back up and, and we got to go home with our little boy, two, two weeks old. He was in ICU for a week at that time. But four months later, we went through the whole thing over again. And it was hard because at two weeks, you know, he's just the spacey little newborn and doesn't really have a personality yet. But you parents know at four months, that little personality's kicked in. He's no longer this little newborn. He's, he's your little guy. Joey, who giggles and laughs and you know him. And he went through the whole same thing. And, and then this was the worst part. I remember as they were doing work on him, the, the nurses and doctors asked me to kind of hold him and comfort him while they were poking tubes and stuff in him. I remember there was one point where Joey had seven tubes going in and out of him in different places. And I remember just his little eyes looking up at me like, daddy, what's going on? What are you doing? But I was holding him down, not because I was being torturous and mean, I was, I was wanting to save his life. And that's sometimes what love does. Love has a darker side, um, but it also is an expression of the greatest love in many ways. When you read the Old Testament and you see the blood in the guts, don't dismiss it. Don't say, I don't really like those stories. I like reading about the good stuff. No, you gotta take the whole thing because it's a beautiful picture of God's love for humanity, even the wrath, the destruction, the doom and the gloom. It's all part of the deal. And that leads us to our text this morning, Zephaniah chapter one. Uh, let's look at two verses. We'll look at the rest of it on Wednesday night, but just kind of give you a sneak preview of coming attractions. Uh, here it is, Zephaniah chapter one, uh, verse 14 and 15. It says, the great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Wow, welcome to Athey Creek. You're saying, man, I thought this was a happy church. Nope, not this morning. No, it's, it's actually, it's a funny thing because uh, <clears throat> fire and brimstone sermons do come out when you go verse by verse through the Bible. And this is one of those heavy scriptures and it's talking about a specific time that's yet to come. It's called here, the day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord is near. Now, um, I wanna remind you of something we learned back in the book of Joel, if you were with us. There's, there's specific days in the Bible. And when I say days, I'm not talking about specific singular days, but they're time periods. Like when an old timer says, well, back in my day, was he talking about um, you know, June 7th, 1966? No. He's saying back in my day, in other words, when I was younger, there was a time period when we used to do things this way. And it's a phrase, it's a figure of speech. Well, the Bible uses it the same way when it talks about the days in the Bible. There's four specific, quote, days that you should know about. The first day in the Bible is um, right here, the day of man, number one. And it's sort of defined, by the way, in Genesis chapter, um, chapter two, as it turns out. Um, but all that to say, it's when the Lord gave the, you know, the, um, the, the humanity sort of the title deed to planet earth. That, that was the day of man. And, and man, you know, the Genesis chapter 2:15, when the Lord says, subdue the earth, uh, I'm going to give you stewardship over the earth. He hands the title deed to man. And then suddenly man just totally royally messes it up. The day of man is an unmitigated disaster characterized by famine, starvation, disease, war, all that stuff was, is the day of man. And guess what period we're still in? 
We're in the day of man. That should explain why things are bad. Or, well, God is love, then why are bad things happening? Um, it's because this is called the day of man. It's all our fault. It's because we sinned, we messed up, we tweaked this earth out, it's our fault. That's the day of man. The next day you should know about in the Bible is the day of Christ. Now, this is a fun one. I love this one, the day of Christ. Um, I could give you tons of scriptures on this one. Uh, the, the phrase day of Christ is used several times in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 8, you can jot that down. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 14. Philippians 1, 6. There's, there's a lot of uh, mentions of this day of Christ, but it's referring to uh, what's happening. And the main scripture you should jot down is 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. When you read about the day of Christ, that is of the four days we're talking about here, it is actually a single day that's gonna happen. Literally, it's gonna happen on a, on a certain day. And that is the rapture of the church. Whenever you read about the day of Christ in the Bible, in the New Testament, you're gonna realize that he's talking about when he comes to get his church and take us up out of here, like in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up Greek word, harpazo. Uh, Latin Vulgate translation, rapturo, which, we, which is where we get our word rapture. Um, and the Bible says the Lord's gonna take us up. That's called the day of Christ in the Bible. The third day that you should know about in the scriptures is the day of the Lord, which is the one we're gonna talk about today. Um, and the day of the Lord is defined when God steps in and intervenes um, after the day of man. Um, these days are chronological, by the way. The first day of man, that's where we're living right now. The thing that sort of ends the day of man is the rapture of the church. And then um, that's the day of Christ. And then after the day of Christ, it ushers in the next season called the day of the Lord. That is when God says, time's up. Um, that's when God says, I am gonna intervene in the condition of humanity. Um, now, the thing that's confusing about the day of the Lord and a lot of people is what is the time period defined as? Because there are two distinct periods that you might confuse. The first part of the day of the Lord is the tribulation period. After the rapture of the church, you have the seven year period called the tribulation where God pours out his wrath on a Christ rejecting sinful world. But the day of the Lord continues after the tribulation when Christ returns, the second coming of Christ, where he will then read it, Revelation 19. He'll come with 10,000s of his saints and he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem. And uh, that brings in the millennial kingdom is what the Bible calls it, the, the thousand year rule of our Lord uh, over the earth for a thousand years. That's what the Bible says. Then the millennial kingdom is gonna be an interesting time. It's gonna be like the antediluvian world, according to the Bible, that is the pre-flood conditions where people will live to almost a thousand years and stuff like that. The Bible says it'll kind of go back to that condition and there'll be peace and blessing. So the day of the Lord is the tribulation period. That's the gloomy beginning. And then you've got the millennial kingdom, which is a glorious time of Christ uh, ruling and reigning. But then after the millennial kingdom, then you have the final day talked about in the Bible uh, is the day of God. And um, that is mentioned, I'll show you where uh, here a little bit later, but Second Peter chapter three, you can jot that down next to the day of God. Um, but that's where um, after the millennial kingdom, remember, if you know your Bibles, Satan is loosed for a short season at the end of the millennial kingdom uh, to deceive again, uh, the people on the earth during the millennial kingdom. But there, Michael the archangel will uh, eventually bind up Satan. Keep that in mind, Christian people. Uh, it's not God versus Satan, hopefully God wins. That's ridiculous. That's like saying, oh, I hope God wins. It's like saying, oh, um, the, the Los Angeles Rams are gonna play the Athey Creek Cougars in football. Uh, boy, I hope the Rams win. That, like that's as ridiculous. You know, Satan is a created being and the one who's actually gonna subdue Satan is not Jesus and it's not God. It's just another angel who I shouldn't say it that way. Michael, the archangel is hardly just another angel, but he is the angel that's gonna bind up Satan and eventually throw him in to Gehenna or the place we call you know, hell, lake of fire. And that's gonna, that's gonna happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. So what happens after that? Well, the Bible says the day of God as defined by 2 Peter 3 is um, when God puts away this heaven and this earth and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what happens then? We don't know much. The Bible just says new heaven and new earth. And uh, the idea is we'll all live happily ever after after that. Um, and that's the idea. So the day of God speaks of the new heaven and the new earth. And that's the four big days uh, that the Bible talks about. Now, um, let's break this down about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is number one, uh, grim. 
We read that in our text. Let's review just for a second. The day of the Lord is grim. Uh, if, you, if you look at this phrase by phrase, it gets more and depressing, more and more depressing as you read it. Um, it says that the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Um, there's something about seeing a mighty man, a man of battle-hardened uh, readiness. Um, to see that guy cry, you know things are tough. Um, and it says it's a day of wrath. By the way, the tribulation period is called the time of wrath, the wrath of the lamb. Some of you are like, Brad, I'm not really scared of the wrath of the lamb. Like, why should we be afraid of a lamb? It's like, uh, <laughs> like, are we afraid of that? Well, you gotta remember the lamb is Jesus in his first coming. Remember John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. He came to be a sacrificial lamb in his first coming. In his second coming, Jesus is um, gonna come as a conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But you have to understand there's a correlation that Jesus is the lamb that was slain on the cross for the sins of the world. But that, the first time he came as the one to save the world, but for those who reject that work of the lamb of God, they're gonna find the wrath of the lamb is no joke. We'll show you that as well. Uh, here in a minute. But the idea is, um, you know, it's, it's gonna be a time called the wrath. Keep that in mind. Uh, verse 15 also says it's a day of trouble. Um, in fact, the Bible says it's called the time, the, the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob is the name of Israel when they're in, in trouble. <laughs> like the Lord calls Israel, Israel when they're good, calls them Jacob when they're bad. Did your mom have a thing like that? I, I remember when my mom used my middle name, I was in trouble. Brett, Evan, Metter, Brett, time to run, Pure. You know, she used my middle name. Well, God uses the name Jacob oftentimes when they're in trouble, and it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period. So it's a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness, desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess. That's gonna be literally the case according to the Bible. Uh, in fact, why don't you keep your finger here and flip over. I wanna show you the beginning of the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter six? And let's do a quick review of that. Um, you know, Revelation, people get kind of freaked out about studying the book of Revelation, but it's really an easy book if you just follow its outline that is given to us in Revelation 119. Talks about John, write the things which are past, the past, things that are present and things that are future. And that's exactly what John does. Chapter one talks about Jesus, the glorified Jesus in chapter one, the things which were past. Um, chapter two, or, or the second part is chapter two and three, the seven churches of Asia Minor, um, where the, the present age of the church age. But then after that, it starts talking about the things that are here, hereafter. Metatauta is the Greek word. And, and he starts talking about the tribulation period. And by the way, Revelation 6 through 19 is talking about the tribulation period. Um, and, um, and so six, chapter six of Revelation is where the whole thing's kind of kicked off. Um, so what you have in the book of Revelation is you have these six seals starting to be broken open, which are seals of judgment upon the world. And remember the title deed I told you that was given to man in Genesis? Um, man, when they sinned in the garden, they gave the title deed over to Satan. But there in the book of Revelation, when you know they crowd, who's worthy to open up the seals of the scroll? What scroll are we talking about? It's talking about the title deed to planet earth. And there's only one who would be worthy to open up uh, and satisfy the requirements to take over that title deed back of planet earth. And that's what that whole scroll thing is about. Um, if you're interested, we did whole studies on Revelation. You can uh, go on our website and listen to all that because that's kind of an involved deal. But he starts breaking open these seals and those are all bad situations. The first seal is Antichrist coming you know, uh, on a horse uh, you know, to rule. The second seal is war. The third uh, seal is famine. Uh, the fourth seal is death. Um, in fact, let's read that one, verses seven and eight of chapter six. It says here in Revelation six, verse seven, and when I heard, uh, when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice uh, of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. <clears throat> Do you guys hear Johnny Cash when you, uh, like I, I hear that and death followed with him. Uh, and uh, if you know the song, anyway. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Um, and then uh, the, the, the sixth, or pardon me, the fifth seal is persecution of the tribulation saints. You said, Brett, I thought we were raptured before the tribulation. We are. 
Well, then why are there Christians in the tribulation? Easy, we call them the tribulation saints. They're the people who accept Christ during the tribulation period. After the rapture of the church, there's a bunch of people that are gonna be saved. And I wonder if maybe some of your family members who think you're a little cuckoo right now because you're a Christian, and you believe in the rapture of the church, but can you imagine the people that you've told about that who think you're a little wacky now, but when you are taken up to be with the Lord, they'll think, man, uh, and they'll come to Athey Creek and hopefully it'll be empty. Uh, but they're like, where'd everybody go? Uh, and hopefully our website will still be up and they can go back and listen to our teachings. And go, oh, okay, got it. But I believe there's gonna be a bunch of people saved during the tribulation. They're gonna be slain, it says, for their word of God and the testimony which they hold in verse nine. Like that's gonna be a bad day for the, the, the people who believed in Jesus in the tribulation. Uh, they will be slain for their faith. Some of you might say, well, Brett, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll wait and see if you guys are raptured and see if this stuff is real. And then if it is, I'll become a Christian then. Uh, two problems with that. One. Um, if you can't be a Christian now when things are easy, what makes you think you're gonna be able to be a Christian when it'll cost you your head in the tribulation period? Like that's, that's a little bit of a gamble if you ask me. The second problem I have with that is what happens if you get run over by a truck on the way home from church today? Uh, then, you're, you're, then it's too late at that point and you should be saved. Today is the day <laughs> for salvation and it's a better way to go anyway. Uh, ask anybody who's saved, uh, they'll tell you. It's a good way to roll, to be saved, your sins forgiven, heaven in store, it makes everything better. Well, chapter six, this is where Revelation chapter six starts to match Zephaniah's description <clears throat> of the day of the Lord. In verse 12 specifically, let's read verse 12. It says, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell into earth even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs <clears throat> when she is shaken of a mighty wind and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places and the kings of the earth uh, and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men. Remember the mighty man that was crying in Zephaniah? It says the mighty men, every bondman, every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for, great, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? God's wrath is going to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And there's a lot of Christian churches that won't bring this up. They don't like talking about the, the fire and brimstone sermons. That God is still righteous and he will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And, 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 and yet people like to just talk, oh, it's just gonna be wonderful. Everything's, everything. you're gonna live victoriously and, and it's all about this happiness and you being healthy, happy and uh, all this stuff. That's, that's part of it. God does care about our happiness and, and God is merciful and gracious and we love talking about that, but you also have to see the darker side as well. That's my point. Um, if you don't know what's coming, you won't be thankful or appreciative of the glory of God's mercy and grace. Um, it gets worse. In fact, um, just since we're in the book of Revelation, turn to chapter 16. This is, an, this is the end of the tribulation period now because Revelation 6 through 19 is the whole story of the tribulation. But in chapter 16, check this out, verse 20. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Um, Hawaii might not be the best place to be during the tribulation, just FYI, if you're not a Christian here and you're left behind, don't go to Hawaii, just, just a heads up. Uh, <laughs> verse 21, and it says, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. How, how much is a talent in the Bible? A hundred pounds. 100 pound hailstones. That's gonna be a little, do a number on your car's uh, body uh, as those 100, and man, if that hailstone hits your head, that's an Advil moment right there if you ask me. Uh, 100 pound hailstones smashing into your head. Uh, that's what's gonna happen in the tribulation. And men blaspheme God because of the plague of hail for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Isn't it amazing that during the tribulation when God's wrath is being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, when that stuff happens, some people will be saved, but most of humanity will still shake their puny fists at God. And, and like we read in chapter six, instead of repenting, they'll say, rocks, fall on us. They'll pray to, pray to rocks that they would crush them before they'll repent and turn to God. 
And then the hailstones hit, and instead of saying, Lord, have mercy on us, they'll say, uh, you know, blankety blank God. They'll curse God and blaspheme God when the hailstones come down uh, uh, because of this exceeding great hailstone plague. That's the nature of the tribulation period. And the reason I share this with you is the day of the Lord is grim and it is coming. Um, that's an important thing. And we see that in Zephaniah as, as, by the way, Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah mentions the day of the Lord by name seven times in this three chapter book. So really the theme of the book of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. So number one, the day of the Lord is, is grim. Number two, the day of the Lord is real. It's gonna happen. Isn't it strange? It's almost surreal when something seems like it might happen, but it's way off in the future. And so you kind of don't think of it as being real. Um, that's a dangerous sort of mindset. You know, um, some of you have lived those kind of things. You know, you get overextended financially and you've borrowed and leveraged and you've got bills and eventually it becomes very real when they start, uh, you know, coming after you financially. Or, or what about the, like things like the Ukrainian war right now? For a long time, people say, oh, Putin's lining up on the border of Ukraine and he's gonna attack. But it's interesting because if you really know the geopolitics of it, much of the world was like, yeah, we don't know if that, that's not really gonna happen. And so far off in the future, Putin wouldn't do that. Uh, and there was kind of this mindset, even though you know, our president was saying, our intelligence says he might attack Ukraine, um, he was saying that. But later on when it happened, our president seemed surprised that it happened. Like even he didn't really believe Putin was gonna do it. Um, and that's evident now. And much of the world in Europe, Europe was like, oh yeah, that's just Putin way over there in Russia and we don't have anything to be afraid of. And then suddenly Putin's in Ukraine and at the back doorstep of Europe and Europeans are freaking out. I was sharing at the Prophecy Update the night before last about how the Russian you know, MiGs came with nuclear weapons on their jets and they flew over um, uh, you know, Swedish airspace uh, and Finland uh, as well. Um, they, and and uh, they, you know, the, the Swedes had to launch their jets and you know, there's this very uh, sanctimonious European group of people saying, oh yeah, we have nothing. You Americans are warmongers. You're into battle and into war. We're not into warfare. Uh, we're not into stuff like Americans. Suddenly they find themselves, oh, we better get our planes up in the air and we better get our weapons together. But we don't think it's ever really gonna happen to us. One of the things I shared at the Prophecy Update is one of the more ominous quotes from history. Um, a guy by the name of uh, Leon Trotsky, uh, who happened to be Ukrainian, by the way, he said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. That's an interesting quote, isn't it? Um, the Ukrainians were just saying, eh, we like farming and we like doing our thing and we like living our lives. And they, we don't care about you know, all that politics stuff, but there's a lot of people over there and, and people in Europe and even the United States. Um, but that's the problem with warfare. And one of the things we talked about at the Prophecy Update, we, we talked about the signs of the times as related to the Bible and the end times. And, um, and um, you know, things like nuclear weapons. Oh yeah, nobody's ever gonna really use those. But you know, that's where war is very much interested in you. Do you live? near um, a, a large city? Do you live near a large plant that makes technology? Do you, do you live in any place strategic that might be a place where a nuclear bomb, like, like there's there a lot of people in the world kind of like just put it out of their minds. Uh, after the Cold War, it's like we just in our minds thought, oh, nuclear weapons have vanished and we have no, nothing to fear. Meanwhile, nuclear weapons are more powerful today than they've ever been. And some crazy people have nuclear weapons. Um, and they, some of them will be willing to use it. Even Putin said he's willing to use nuclear weapons. He said that in the last few weeks. Um, so that's something that the world should be concerned about. You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. In the same way, the day of the Lord, it's very real and it's gonna come. And it's gonna be that surreal moment when it happens. The rapture of the church takes us up out of here. But if you're an unbelieving person and you've rejected the mercy of Christ, then the Bible says you're gonna be in that time called the day of the Lord and it's gonna be no joke and it's very real. And I'm not trying to freak you out as much as just tell you, this is what the Bible says. Um, by the way, um, in Zephaniah's time, along with Jeremiah and those contemporaries, they were all prophets saying, the Babylonians are gonna come and crush Jerusalem. Like, yeah, whatever. And then Babylon came and crushed Jerusalem and they were standing there thinking, oh, 
It happened. It really did happen. Same thing is gonna happen with the day of the Lord. There's people that kind of blow it off, sort of chuckle, laugh at it, but the day of the Lord is real. Number three, finally, and lastly, number three, the day of the Lord is near. Okay, Pastor, but this is where I think you're totally wacko. The day of the Lord is near. Um, Well, listen to what Zephaniah said in our text. Back to Zephaniah, uh, verse 14, it says, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. The word hasteth means to, uh, it's speeding along with great rapidity. It's coming, coming sooner and sooner is the idea. And see, I understand what you're saying. You're saying, you know, this is Zephaniah 2,500 years ago saying the day of the Lord is near and the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. Uh, hello, uh, that, that's, he was wrong. Zephaniah was wrong. Well, he wasn't wrong and I'll tell you, there's two main reasons why. Number one, those of you that know your Bible, especially Bible prophecy, there's something in the Bible that confuses people, but it shouldn't. As you read the Bible, you start to realize many of the prophecies dealing with the end times has what scholars call the dual fulfillment of prophecy. It's like there's a foreshadow event of coming attractions. And they have a local uh, application of that time and that period and that place. And then oftentimes they have a far reaching application. Classic example, remember when we were going through the book of Daniel and we saw the invasion of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and we saw Antiochus Epiphanes uh, 170-ish BC where he came into Jerusalem and crushed Jerusalem and uh, made the priests drink pig's blood. Remember that whole story? Um, That was a foreshadow as Daniel talks about that event that was coming, Antiochus and, and called him this man of sin kind of guy that came into Jerusalem. Then Daniel, as he's talking about it, it's like his gaze goes past that local application to the end of the world and to the day of the Lord. And Daniel says, and there's coming a guy. And then he goes into this description that surpasses Antiochus Epiphanes locally and goes and talks about this coming world leader. Some people call him the Antichrist. He's called the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Assyrian, um, the beast. There's all kinds of names for Antichrist in the Bible, but he's this coming world leader, even future in our event, in our time. So in that sense, there's a dual fulfillment. Many, if not most of the Bible prophecies have that kind of a dual fulfillment. By the way, there's even a few that have a triple sort of fulfillment, which is kind of interesting. But all that to say, Zephaniah, when he's talking about the day of the Lord is near, he's talking about it both locally at his time and also futuristically at the end. It's that dual fulfillment. Um, Zephaniah is talking and it would be applied as the Babylonians would come and crush all of Judea. And, uh, and he's referring to that but then his gaze goes past that. And we're gonna see on Wednesday night, there's some prophecies in Zephaniah that are kind of amazing as far as the end times. For example, Zephaniah predicts that, you know, and we'll show you where the Hebrew language would become extinct. Did you know the Hebrew language was extinct? Um, there was a time in history where nobody spoke Hebrew on the earth. Um, it was a, a scholarly language, sort of like Latin is today. People use Latin to sort of understand origins of words and stuff like that. But unless you're a Catholic priest, you're really not speaking Catholic or <laughs> Catholic, uh, Latin. <laughs> it's become kind of the new Catholic language. But, um, and most people go to church like, what does he say? And I have no idea. Well, anyway, um, you know, nobody really speaks Latin as much. So, but it is an academic language. In the same way, Hebrew was like that until Theodore Herzl and the, the Zionist movement where the Jews started moving back to Israel. And a guy came along named Ben Yehuda. Who? Ben Yehuda. Uh, there's a market street in Jerusalem that's fun to go shopping at called Ben Yehuda Street. And why is it, why is it called that? Because Ben Yehuda was the guy um, you know, who very early in the history of Israel, he sat at his dinner table with his family and said, we are no longer gonna speak our native language. We're now gonna speak Hebrew as we're now living in Jerusalem. And, uh, and he uh, is known mostly as single-handedly bringing the Hebrew language back. If you go to Jerusalem today, everybody's speaking Hebrew. It's, if you go to Israel today, people speak Hebrew and it's, it's been revived. Zephaniah the prophet talked about how that would happen that the language would be lost and then it would be brought back in. That's not a coincidence, that's a god Um The Bible knows what it's talking about when it talks about the future, which is um, understandably scary when you're talking about the day of the Lord. So Zephaniah has a lot to say. Some of his prophecies have already come to pass, but this issue of the day of the Lord, that's yet to be seen. So, so you're saying, Brett, that there's a near fulfillment 
of the prophecy of the day of the Lord with Zephaniah? Yes, but there's a far fulfillment. So that's just wrong still then because Zephaniah says the day of the Lord is near, it is near. He says it twice in our text. The day of the Lord, it is near, it is near. And he even says, it hasteth greatly. In other words, it's coming speedily or, or uh, exponentially faster is the idea. How does that work out, Brett? 2,500 years to the day of the Lord, it still hasn't happened. Well, that's where you kind of have to turn to 2 Peter. Would you flip over to 2 Peter with me? I've got you flipping through some verses, but I want you to see these scriptures for yourself because you should know where they are in your Bible and they are important scriptures. 2 Peter chapter three is where uh, Peter lines up again with Zephaniah. Even as Revelation chapter six lines up with Zephaniah, so too, 2 Peter chapter three sort of lines up. But I love what Peter does here because he gives us something that's kind of cool. When people come to you today and say, you guys believe in the, the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord and the tribulation period, um, people have been talking about that for years. Um, and things have gone on the same as always. Um, there's always been trouble in the earth and, and you guys are just wacko. Um, I always really enjoy that when people say that. Why do you enjoy it, Brett? Because they're fulfilling Bible prophecy as they speak. Uh, check this out. What, what does Peter say? Second Peter chapter three, verse three. It says, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep or died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world then was being overflowed with water perished. In other words, Peter's saying, these people that are scoffing, where's the problem? What do you guys that believe this? It, it, nothing's happened all these times. Um, Peter says, know this, that's gonna happen in the last days more and more. People are gonna scoff and mock, which we're seeing that not only in the secularist, but we're seeing that in the churches of America today. Oh, you Christian churches that believe in the rapture and talking Bible prophecy, and they mock and scoff, they really do. It's tragic because they're doing exactly what Peter prophesied. They're gonna scoff and mock. But he says, it's gonna come even as Noah built his ark. He was building his ark for a hundred years and people were like, what is the deal with this wacko Noah guy? But then it started raining. And uh, that's what the illustration Peter gives. But, um, but fast forward to verse eight, uh, chapter three, verse eight. It says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Okay, this is one of those things I talk about often. There's certain things the Bible says you're not supposed to be stupid about. Be not ignorant of, and there's, there's like four or five things that we've covered in previous studies. But this is one of, don't be ignorant about this. Um, and by the way, all the things the Bible says don't be ignorant about, sadly, the church largely seems to be ignorant of these things. It's kind of interesting. So it says, be not ignorant, verse eight, uh, of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack or lazy concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but his long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now pause just for a second. Um, this is interesting. He says a day with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years with the Lord is like a day. God exists outside of time. And uh, man, that we could go into whole talk about that. But, but as it turns out, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So when you say it's been 2,500 years, well, in God's economy, it's just been two and a half days. Like, like, is that really a big deal for God? God says, I'm coming and I'm gonna come quickly. But he wants it to be a variable that we have no idea when he's gonna come. If somebody claims to be a Bible prophecy teacher, and starts telling you what day the rapture is gonna be or when the day of the Lord's gonna be, you can just chalk him off as wacko. Because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. And that variable is part of this thing about the days. We just don't know when it's gonna happen. Well, Brett, they were saying that for hundreds of years ago that, that Christ is gonna come and you guys are gonna be, you're gonna die just like, you know, some of those preachers, Spurgeon and J. Vernon McGee and G. Campbell Morgan, some of those preachers that thought Christ would come in their time, but they didn't. You're gonna go down with them. Well, count me with them. I like those guys. Uh, I wanna be one of those Christians like we're supposed to be. <clears throat> we're supposed to live our life as if Christ comes tomorrow. Well, what if he doesn't? then we're still living our life the way God wants us to live our life, as if he could come tomorrow. The imminence of his return is part of the deal. We just don't know when it's gonna happen. 
But he does tell us there are signs of the times and Peter tells us the reason it hasn't happened yet um, is because the Lord is not slack or lazy, but he would that none should perish. Christ is, is not coming yet because Peter says, the Lord wants people to be saved. He's patient. I'm so thankful that, that um, so many have been, been saved. We even saw, you know, just the last two services last night, four o'clock and six o'clock, you know, like 15 people accept Christ. Um, I'm thankful that the Lord is patient. Those people are now going to heaven because they accepted Jesus Christ and, and the Lord is patient. Now let's read on here in Second Peter. This is where it gets very much into this, verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat that the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. See, I believe in global warming. Um, the Bible teaches global warming. It's not gonna take hundreds of years though. It's gonna take a second. Um, the earth will be burned up. When is that gonna happen? That's gonna happen on the day of God. Check this out, verse, uh, verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, that's the earth and the heavens and everything, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God? Remember I was telling you what that was earlier. That's when the Lord gives us a new heaven and a new earth. That, that's something we should be looking forward to, believe it or not. Everybody's like, yeah, but he's gonna destroy the earth and the heavens. Yeah, but we get to trade that in for something even more glorious that hasn't been polluted by Satan and humanity. Um, the new heavens and the new earth is gonna be awesome. Uh, we're gonna live happily ever after. So looking for hastening to the coming of the day of God, verse 12, uh, wherein the heavens uh, being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, what are we supposed to do? It says, look for new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Man, we're called to be holy. During these last days we're living, what does Peter say? Be diligent, be faithful, watching for the Lord, um, looking forward to the day of the Lord, looking forward to the day of God. Um, Peter kind of fills all that in there uh, in his message. Now, there's a few things about what Peter talks about that I think are what I want to remind you of. And I, for speed, I'm just going to quickly show you these scriptures. First Thessalonians 5, I talk about this often. <clears throat> but, um, and Peter, Peter says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Does that make anybody nervous? A thief in the night is something that's kind of scary. There you are just sleeping and you're, you're, you're you know, minding your own business and some thief comes into your house. Why is it that the Bible compares the Lord's, the day of the Lord and his second coming and the rapture of the church, why does he compare that to like a thief coming in? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, it's gonna shock you when it happens. You'll be surprised. Um, that's what Peter says. But check out what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. That's why we do prophecy updates, by the way, so that we, we're watching the signs of the times. We're not supposed to be in darkness. Um, and um, are you a child of the light? Um, if not, you should accept Jesus. Believe in Christ and suddenly you'll be a child of the light um, and you won't be caught like a thief in the night, uh, the Bible says. Um, fast forward to verse nine of 1 Thessalonians. It says, for God hath not appointed us, the, the believers, to wrath. Remember the tribulation called the time of the wrath of the lamb, the wrath of God, but we're not appointed wrath, but to obtain salvation by Jesus, um, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And then it says, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also as you do. If what I'm sharing with you deeply troubles you, the day of the Lord and the wrath of the lamb and all the hundred pound hailstones pounding this planet. It is a scary situation. Thief in the night, that kind of language is very Zephaniah. Um, and, it, and it troubles people. But what does the Bible say? You and I as Christians, we're not appointed to the wrath. That's why, by the way, one of the many reasons I believe in a pre-trib rapture. 
Um, does Jesus take his bride and say, okay, you're my bride, but I'm gonna let you go through the time of wrath where um, you know, two thirds of the planet's gonna die. Um, happy wedding anniversary or whatever. Is that what he's gonna say? No, we're the bride of Christ. He takes us up, raptures us into, his, um, into, into heaven where we get to be for seven years in the marriage feast of the lamb. A Jewish wedding lasted seven days. It's like a perfect correlation uh, when you look at the way it all falls out. And we'll be with the Lord. The, the Lord is not gonna have his bride, the church, go through the time of wrath. So it says, we are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus who died for us. Um, and then it says, wherefore comfort yourselves one another with these words, the words of the rapture of the church um, and that we get to be with Christ and we get to edify and build each other up instead of be depressed about the gloom that's coming. So um, it's true, the day of the Lord is grim, the day of the Lord is real, but the day of the Lord, I believe, is near. Um, it is near, it is near, Zephaniah says. And some of you might say, well, that's scary. Don't be afraid. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, in other words, you don't have to be afraid. Even when Jesus was talking there in Matthew 24, when the disciples said, tell us about the end of the world and when it's gonna be, Jesus said, well, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be troubled by this. Um, these things all must come to pass um, before uh, the, you know, the coming of Christ. And so we are told to be, by Jesus himself to be comforted. Why? What's comforting about the end time scenario? I'll tell you what it is, if you're a Christian, be comforted because we'll be taken up to be with the Lord in heaven. And we get to be with the Lord forever from that day forward. And we'll never have risk of sin and trouble and sorrow and all the tears will be wiped away. Like this is gonna be the most glorious time in all of our lives once that all happens. So it's something to actually look forward to. So doom and gloom, nope. If you're a Christian, it's boom and zoom. Not doom and gloom, boom and zoom, boom. You'll be raptured, taken up to be with the Lord and zoom to be up with him in heaven forever. And it's gonna be a glorious, glorious thing. Um, that's the question you need to ask yourself uh, on this Sunday morning. Are you ready? Do you know where you're gonna go? Uh, if the rapture of the church happened right now, would you be taken with the church or, or would you be left behind? Um, because the Bible talks that that's what's gonna happen actually. Some people will be left behind. But who is it that's gonna be taken? Those who've been saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you accept Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. You see, the gospel is very simple and it's very clear. Um, it's called good news gospel, why? Because the bad news is you and I are sinners and we deserve death and hell. The good news is God so loved the world, that's you, um, that he gave his only begotten son. How did he give his son? God became a man, lived among us, the son of God, as he's called, and Jesus, went willingly to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. That's why John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. What was finished? The work of salvation for all of humanity, anyone who would accept it. You see, that's the fine line between the saved and the unsaved, is do you accept what God has done? Well, if God is love, he won't send people to hell, people say, correct. God is love, so he gives you this free option. It's the get out of hell free pass by saying, okay, I, 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 I'm thankful that God provided the way, the truth, the life, that the way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so simple. Um, when, when Paul says it in Romans 10, verse nine and 10, he says, he defines what is salvation. He says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus that he died on the cross and rose from the grave. It says, you will be saved. It's just that powerful and simple. What does it mean to confess with your mouth? It means to confess you're a sinner. The first thing you have to acknowledge is your sin and that's called repentance. To just say, I repent of my sin um, and I acknowledge my sin is wrong before God. That's the first thing you gotta get to is understanding you're a sinner and that you have fallen short. And the Bible says, if you're a sinner, you deserve death and hell, all of us do. But if you acknowledge that and repent, it doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, by the way. Repentance doesn't mean perfection. Repentance means acknowledging your sin. Then, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, rose up from the grave, it says, you will be saved. That's the good news. And it's so simple. The sad thing is millions of people will harden their hearts and say, yeah, I don't really care about that. 
Um, it, it's like you might take that, you know, I'm not interested in war, but war is inf- interested in you. You might say that about hell too. I'm not interested in hell, but hell is interested in you. And it, it comes your way, whether you like it or not, unless, unless you accept Christ. And bring, but are you trying to scare us? You are kind of a fire and brimstone preacher here. Um, yes, I am. Anyway, uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm speaking what the Bible teaches. Call it what you want, but it's what the Bible actually teaches. May the Lord give you a soft heart just to say, I accept Christ because man, the day gets a lot brighter and things look much more cheery. And you can, like the scripture says, that's the word, we can comfort one another with these words and edify one another if you accept salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Would you pray with me, please, and bow your heads? And with heads bowed, and you Christians, would you be in prayer? Because I wonder if there might be a few who would say today, Brad, I, 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 I'm kind of done rejecting the cross. I need to know that I'm saved by God's grace through faith. Just be in prayer right now. And I, I wonder if, if maybe some of you would accept Jesus as your savior right now. Um, it's there for the taking. God has you here for this very moment. If you're here or if you're watching online and, and you're wondering, am I saved? If the rapture of the church happened today, would I go to heaven? Um, if, if that's you, um, then you can accept Christ right now. There's nothing stopping you other than just a lack of faith. Um, we're saved by grace through faith, the Bible says. So you gotta believe and accept. If you wanna do that, I'd like to pray that prayer with you. I'd like to confess Christ. In fact, I'm gonna have the whole church pray this out loud with anyone who would. But if that's you, would you boldly just acknowledge that while everybody else's head's bowed, would you just say, Pastor Brett, before God, I wanna acknowledge that I wanna accept Christ. If that's you, would you just raise your hand up right now and let me acknowledge you uh, before we pack it up for the day. And uh, just, just, just let, let me know, let the Lord know by lifting up of your hand as we uh, get ready to leave. Anybody at all over here? Okay, cool. Sit right here, good. See you guys over here. Awesome. Good. I'm gonna pray this prayer of faith. And um, if you just pray this from your heart, through your mouth, the Bible promises, this is, this is you just accepting this free gift of God. So church family, let's pray this out loud, backing these several people right now. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. That he rose up from the grave and that my sins are forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, what an amazing thing that you tell us in your word that it's the confession with our mouth that leads to salvation, not how good we are or how many amazing things we've done. Lord, it's the amazing thing that you did, the work of the cross that saves us. How thankful we are. And now for these who've just accepted you, Lord, I pray that you'd just wrap your loving arms around them, that they would know their sins are forgiven, that you'd protect them from just doubt and wonder. But Lord, may you only reaffirm the confession that they've just made and just uh, reveal yourself to them as you have for so many of us. Lord, that you'd give them that peace that passes understanding and joy knowing that we get to go to heaven. Lord, I pray blessing upon them. I pray blessing on this whole congregation, Lord, as we live in darker days, I pray that we'd always look to the light, your son, Jesus Christ, keeping our eyes fixed on him. This we pray, Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.